Psalm 15. I'll read it. You can follow along and then uh, we'll pray, have another word of prayer before we go in and discuss what it is that we read here. So Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we believe that what it is that we have just read is your word to us. And as such, it is incumbent upon us to take seriously what we read here, not just simply because of the weight of your truth, but because of the joy that's offered for all of those who receive it and welcome it and live according to it. So, Father, we ask right now that as we go through uh, this passage of Scripture and as we see uh, even how your glory in the person of Jesus Christ shines through this psalm, um, that you would give us a sense of weightiness uh, as we stand here in your presence, and yet that the, uh, the weight of your glory and your holiness would also uh, be coupled with um, a growing irrepressible joy at the very fact that we have been permitted to come into your sanctuary. We ask, Father, that more and more this psalm would come to be an accurate description of your people here at Edgewood. We pray that we would see with greater clarity how Jesus fulfills all that this passage has to offer, and that in that fulfillment, one of the greatest gifts that you have imparted to us is your very presence in the person of the Holy Spirit, who not only gives us the desire to live this out, but also gives us the power to do what we are unable to do on our own. Father, may all that we do and say please you and honor you, and it's in the name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen. Psalm 15, along with a lot of the other psalms, presents us with, uh, with sort of an interesting dynamic. We recognize that these psalms are... Old Testament literature, Old Testament poems and songs, and we consider ourselves to be a New Testament people. So on the one hand, we recognize that there's sort of a historical framework that they're set in, and yet at the same time, we recognize that in some sense or in some way, we are meant to be drawn into these Psalms so that in the scope or in the span of history, we stand shoulder to shoulder with Old Testament Israel as the New Testament church, to sing the same songs that they sang, to give the same expressions or the same hopes, the same aspirations that they gave voice to in these psalms. And so one of the unique things about the psalms in particular, because so many Christians, rightfully so, go to the psalms to find expressions of the heights of the Christian experience and the depths of the Christian experience and everything in between. One of the unique characteristics of the Psalms is that 
we stand shoulder to shoulder with men like David and Asaph and the sons of Korah and the rest of Israel, and we say and recite or memorize or sing the lyrics to these songs that they penned, and it means exactly the same thing. What David sang, what David wrote in Psalm 15, had a specific meaning that would have been well understood to the people who heard and who took up this psalm on their lips. When we come, thousands of years later, we come to Psalm 15, and the meaning is still the same for us. The difference, though, is the significance that is brought to bear on Psalm 15, depending on which side of the cross you happen to stand. The meaning remains the same. It's timeless. The significance or the weight of that psalm changes. Just to illustrate or or to give an example, if you were to imagine um, sitting in a wedding ceremony and you've got all these different couples scattered around in the pews, in the seats, and they're listening to the exchange of vows. So over here you have a couple who is perhaps just newly um, introduced to each other. They've gone out on a few dates or something like that. Over here, you've got a couple um, who's been seeing each other for a year or two. They're engaged, and they've already got a date set. They're anticipating the wedding day. And then over here, you have another couple who are seasoned veterans of marriage. They've been married for 10, 15, 20, or more years. As those three different couples sit and listen and hear the wedding vows being exchanged, Till death do us part, right? For better or for worse, lawfully wedded husband, lawfully wedded wife, that kind of thing. They hear the vows that are being exchanged, and they all recognize what those vows mean, right? It means exactly the same thing to the couple who's dating, to the couple who's engaged, to the couple who's long-term married. However, the significance of those vows in the minds and the hearts of those couples will vary greatly depending on where they stand in relationship to the marriage institution. Does that make sense? So the couple who's dating hears these vows being said, and perhaps the the girl in particular is is daydreaming, right? Oh, I wonder when my wedding day is going to come. I wonder if this is the one who's going to be saying those things to me. The engaged couple recognizes the fact that they've already, in one sense, already made that step of commitment. They're just waiting for the actual formal date on the calendar to make those exchanges, and they're anticipating their day in which, in front of God and all these witnesses, they make certain their commitment to one another. And the married couple over here is hearing these vows. They're being reminded, perhaps, of their wedding day, but they're also being reminded of the depth and the weight that vows like that bring through real illness and real disagreements. Same meaning, different levels of significance. I think that's one of the ways to read a psalm like Psalm 15, and in fact to read many, if not all of the psalms, is to read it understanding that this is not some kind of code that has to be cracked. It means exactly what it says, and yet... Because of the fact that we stand on the other side of the finished work of Christ, we recognize that there is an added significance that we bring to this passage as God's chosen people when we read this that even David and the Israelites could not bring to bear on this passage. So, let me give you, uh, let me just walk through. Here's what we're going to do. I'm not going to try to go blow by blow 
on every line and say, okay, here's what this means and here's what that means. One of the beauties of this psalm is that it seems to be pretty straightforward, right? When you, when you read it, you know what's being said here. I'm going to take a little bit of time in the first two verses in particular to kind of give a sense of where this passage is going and then look at it as it stands in its original context and then look at it on the other side of the cross. So, the whole theme of the passage is laid out for you in the very first verse. And the first verse phrases this in the form of a question. Who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? So the picture here, or the question, pertains to someone who is going to approach the sanctuary in which God dwells to worship, or to sit and meditate, or to commune with God. And so just in terms of trying to break this down, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the aspiration or the desire that David is expressing here in Psalm 15, and then we're going to follow that up with looking at the reality that we enjoy that David didn't. So as we go through here, let's start with the question, Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? David clues us into the fact that this is not a typical ordinary question by some of the verbiage that he uses. Depending on what translation you're using, I'm, I'm reading out of New American Standard, that very first line, who may abide in your tent? Some of you may have a little uh, footnote or a marginal reading, okay? The word that David uses there is the word for sojourn, which is a word we use all the time, right? Sojourn. I was sojourning in Maine last week or something. Sojourn. This is what uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did. They came from one land, the land of Mesopotamia, and they sojourned in the promised land. It has the idea of someone who comes into a certain realm or location as a stranger or as an alien. They're a non-citizen. And as such, if you're a sojourner, you come into this territory, into this land, with absolutely no rights except for what the inhabitants are ever willing to grant to you. So when David says then in this question, when he opens this passage up and he, sa- and he phrases it literally by saying, who may sojourn in your tent, this is what David is communicating. If anyone is to come to God, to come to the place where God resides, for Israel at this time it's the tabernacle in Jerusalem. If anyone is to come to where God lives and dwells, and if he is to try to make his home with God, he has to understand that he comes as a foreigner and as a stranger to the presence of God. This is not his normal home. Do you get that? If anyone wants to come into the presence of God, he has to recognize that he is stepping into a realm that ordinarily is not his to take, is not his to claim. He has no rights when he comes into the presence of God because he is a stranger and an alien. And if he has any standing, any rights before God in whose presence he stands, it's only the rights that God grants. I do not come to God, I do not approach God on my own terms. He sets the terms by which I make my approach to Him. He determines who it is 
who will live in his presence, who will worship him, and who will not. So the question then is incredibly significant. And David is trying to get us to realize that right off the bat. If we, by nature, from birth, are strangers and exiles from the God who created us, we have been separated from Him, how then will any stranger, how will any alien or exile, how will they come back to find their rest, their home, in the presence of the God who made them? And then you get an added sense of this difficulty in the second question that David gives. He, he, again, communicating the same point, but just rephrasing it in a different way. After asking, who can sojourn in your tent? He says, who may dwell on your holy hill? In this psalm, this is why, primarily, we are considered strangers, aliens, and exiles, because... God is holy, and where His presence resides is a holy place. We, by nature, are not holy citizens or strangers. How do you approach holiness when you are not holy? Who is God going to let in to His tent to have fellowship with Him? And then David goes on and he answers the question for you in verses 2 through 5. Verse 2, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Just stop right there. Verse 2, I think, is just sort of a general overall summary, right? Just kind of a, a glimpse of, well, you could throw all the, all the descriptions, all the details, all the qualifications into this one verse. Verse 2 sums it all up. And then verses 3 through 5 give specific examples of what David has in mind when he's talking about things like integrity and righteousness and speaking truth in his heart. So let's just start with verse 2. Just verse 2. Just the, just the general, simple three-step description of what kind of people God will allow into His presence. We start with the very first one, he who walks with integrity. NIV probably catches this best when they translate the first part of this verse as, he whose walk is blameless. The word that's used here for integrity is the same word that you see over and over and over again in the Old Testament related to what kind of sacrificial animal you will bring to the Lord's altar. You will bring an unblemished or an unspotted or a whole, complete, sound animal. No defect, no imperfections. And then you have this same language, the same perfection, blameless, unspotted language being used in reference to God's people also. So in Genesis chapter 17, God appears... To Abraham, and the Lord says to Abraham, Abraham, I am the Lord your God, walk before me and be blameless. Same word that David uses here. What does it mean to have a blameless walk? That's kind of a no brainer, right? Blameless we get. It means no one can charge you with anything. Anything. That means that David is saying the person who gets access to the Lord cannot be fingered or blamed for anything wrong. He never speaks out of turn. 
He never says the wrong thing. He never loses his temper. He never yells at the kids. He never says an unkind word to his wife. He never cheats in his time at work or on his taxes. He never does anything wrong to harm or to hurt his neighbor. There is absolutely nothing that this man does that is wrong. He walks, he lives, right? This is not just internal, this is external. He lives, everything that he does is spotless. And David says, if you want to come into the Lord's presence, this is what kind of person you have to be. That's number one. Number two, he whose walk is blameless and who works righteousness. This is the flip side of that blameless coin. If on the one hand, the person who's going to enter God's presence is blameless, he does not do what is wrong. Well, the flip side of that is he works righteousness. He does do what is right. So it's not enough then, according to Psalm 15, for a man to say, I didn't say anything unkind to my wife today. The next question has to be, what did you say that was kind to your wife? Right? It's not enough for the man to say, I did not yell at my kids today. The next question has to be, well, how did you love your kids today? It's not enough to say, I did not cheat my boss. The question is, how did you support and honor your boss? You you see where this is going? It's not just that the person who enters God's presence has to be perfect in the sense that they don't do anything wrong. They have to be perfect in the sense that they do everything right. Never do anything wrong. Always do what's right. That's just on the outside. That's on what people can see and hear you do and say. Then we come to this third part of the summary statement. He who walks with integrity or whose walk is blameless. He who works righteousness. All that he does is right. He always works what is right. And then the third part, he speaks truth. In his heart. What, what in the world does that mean? It could mean, it could mean that everything that this man says comes straight from his heart. In other words, that he is sincere and genuine when he speaks. I think that's part of it, but, but I don't think that goes far enough. For the simple fact that the wording here is not that he speaks truth from his heart but that he speaks truth in his heart. Do you know what that means, to speak truth in your heart? That means that every impulse, every desire, everything that your heart says is true, is right, is lovely, is pure, is blameless. See, this, this last one especially, the, the first two, all, already, I'm sunk, right? There's no way that I can claim to be blameless. There's no way that I can claim that everything that I do is right. But this last one, for, I'm just speaking for myself personally, this is what blows it out of the water for me. 
right? Because to a certain extent, all of us are tempted to think that we can, we can put on the good act or the good effort externally, but when it comes to saying, no, the very heartbeat that you have, the very impulses and desires of your heart must be true, I, I can't do that. Here's what, let me me give you some examples. Here's what it means to speak heart in your truth. If I come and say, I love my wife, I could not be happier with anyone else, and yet, in my heart, I see this woman or that woman, or I run into a rough patch with a wife and I think, you know what, probably I could be happier with someone else. According to Psalm 15, it does not matter what I have said about my wife. My heart speaks the lie. I may say that she is the only woman that I want and that I am completely happy with her, but when my heart says, oh, but this looks pretty attractive, or this marriage probably, probably would be better than what you had right now, Or when I say that I'm content and fully satisfied in my relationship with the Lord, and yet I think, well, if I can only get this promotion, or if only the kids were like this, or if only this didn't happen, right? My heart's spoken a lie. The impulses and desires of my heart are not true. This is just the summary description of what is required of someone who would attempt to come into the presence of God. How do you measure up? And from here, you go on to specifics. And the interesting thing about the specifics is, is that at least in this psalm, David does it differently in other psalms, but in this psalm, David says in terms of the specifics, all of the specifics deal primarily with how you respond to those around you. So I'm already sunk because just in standing before a holy and a righteous God, I can't stand just on the basis of what I've done, much less what I've done with and to other people. So just run through quickly. We're not going to spend time on this, and we're going to throw the list up on the screen so you can, you can see. He does not slander with his tongue. The person who will come into God's presence, he doesn't spread scandal. He doesn't speak harm. He does no evil to his neighbor, which means he doesn't hurt his fellow man, whether physically, emotionally, or spiritually. He doesn't take up a reproach. Notice it's not that he does not utter a reproach. He does not even take one up. He doesn't even receive a negative report about someone else. And should he come into possession of one, he certainly does not carry it around, tuck it away in the recesses of his mind so that he can use it at the appropriate time to his advantage. He does not take up a reproach. He despises the reprobate and honors those who fear the Lord. That sounds a little pharisaical, doesn't it? You despise the reprobate, you honor those who fear the Lord, which implies, well, someone's got to say who the reprobate is. Don't volunteer too quickly. The point here is not 
that you're going around sniffing out sin and saying, reprobate, I hate you. Oh, righteous, I love you. It's a contrast. The contrast is that compared to all that the world has to offer, all the power, all the prestige, all that the people of this world and this age have to offer, the man who would enter into God's presence turns his back on those people, on that way of life, and says, I would much rather cast my lot with the people of God, even though they suffer, even though they're ridiculed, even though they're mocked. He does not esteem, he does not consider those who are in rebellion against God to be the weighty, glamorous people. Rather, he sees the people of God as being the true saints and the true righteous ones. And that's where he wants to give his loyalty and his allegiance. We, we could go on and on here. We're a media-saturated culture in society. E.T., TMZ, any number of websites or blog posts or anything like that, cable, satellite, movies, music. When was the last time that someone presented themselves according to all that the world has to offer and you looked at them and you felt sorry for them? What a waste. And turn from that to look at the downtrodden, the lowly, the humble, the ridiculed among God's people and said, that's where I want to be. He swears to his own hurt. When he speaks, you may as well write it in stone. If dad says, I'm going to be at your ball game this afternoon... And his boss asks him to stay late. What does the man do? He tells his boss, sorry, I can't stay late. I have a prior commitment. Man makes a commitment to his wife. I'm going to take you out here. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Life gets to be too busy. He sets all of that stuff aside so that he can honor the commitment that he's made to his wife. Even if it means less sleep, less money less comfort. He swears to his own hurt at home in the workplace and leisure time. He swears to his own hurt and he does not change. He doesn't lend money at interest. He doesn't try to take advantage of people who are weak or unfortunate. If he's there to help, that's all he intends to do. He doesn't intend to get anything back in return for it. And he doesn't take a bribe against the innocent. He's not a respecter of persons. He's impartial. Every decision that he makes is fair and just. How, how do you measure up? David says, who will sojourn? What stranger, what alien will come into the presence of God and will dwell there? And he says, here's what this stranger has to look like. Do you look like this? So then it comes down to the question, well, David, this seems an awfully odd way to go about expressing praise and worship. How am I supposed to worship with this kind of a weight hanging over me where every verse that I read just tells me how rotten and how sinful and how despicable I am? I, I don't need that reminder. I know. Wait, why is this here? 
If you're inviting me to come praise and to come worship, shouldn't you be inviting? Shouldn't you be encouraging? Shouldn't you make me feel comfortable? That's not what David does. Let me, let me give you, before we move on to, to our same point, let me, two points of application as to why a psalm like this exists and why it's crucial that we keep these kinds of thoughts as a part of our worship. Number one, Psalm 15 and other psalms like it protect us from shallow, sloppy worship. And it protects us from a casual, lackadaisical, comfortable, dishonoring approach to our Creator and King. If, if you step back and you just think just, for example, Christian radio or Christian music or books or anything like that, the Christian media system, well, I don't know what you call it, right? How, how much of what we hear and see and read, when we really cut away everything, is really just an attempt to make us feel more comfortable with God, where are the songs and the books? Where are the testimonies that impress upon us the weightiness of a holy, almighty God? So we sing, so we sing songs like, Come, just as you are to worship. Right? Right? Good, come just as you are. Does, does, that song, does that song stand up to what Psalm 15 says? Come just as you are. Don't worry about it. Just, just come, worship. Is that the attitude of Psalm 15? And by the way, it's not just praise choruses. They're cheap, sloppy songs found between the covers of a hymn book as well. Right? Songs that you sing and you think, Man, I could sing this to my boyfriend or girlfriend and it wouldn't, I wouldn't have to change a single word. Right? Cheapening the presence of God and what it is that we come to encounter when we step in. A psalm like this reminds us that when you come into the presence of God, this is not a normal transaction. You are not approaching your best friend. You are not approaching a parent. You are not approaching a sibling. You're approaching God. So a psalm like this protects us from shallow, sloppy worship. A psalm like this, though, if we look on the positive side, is necessary because what it does is it expresses the aspirations of God's people. See, there's nothing in this psalm that would cause us to think that David is writing this like with this sense of doom and gloom, right, with this great burden, right? There, there are plenty of, <laughs> plenty of psalms where that's there. You can, it's palpable. 
Here, it's just, what, what kind of people are going to be in the presence of God? These are the kinds of people that are going to be there. And then he spells it out. But it seems to be that David has every intention of bringing this song to the nation of Israel to have all of them take place in singing this song as they approach the tabernacle with their offerings. In other words, David does not fully intend for this psalm to keep people away from God. Even though, when you read through these descriptions, it seems like that's what he's doing. David intends for the people of God to approach God and His presence with this song on their lips and to say, even though I may not always live it, even though I may not always say it, When it comes time to be confronted with the presence of God in my heart of hearts, I know that I am not this, but I want to be. And that is a unique distinguishing mark that separates the people of God from everyone else who exists in the world. Only the people who have been brought into a covenant relationship with a holy and righteous God can say, I want to be holy and righteous as He is holy. So while a psalm like this does protect us from being too casual, too lax, too shallow, too sloppy, we want to know the weight of the glory of God's presence. A psalm like this also is, in, is meant to stir up our affections for holiness and righteousness and to say, if this is what God is like, I want more of this. I want to be this. Now, that aspiration, I think, for David and for Old Testament Israel, Old, the Old Testament people of God, I think Psalm 15 is just that. It is, at its core an expression of the heart's desire, an aspiration. David knows he's not any of these things. All of Israel knows that they're none of these things. What happens, though, when you take Psalm 15 and when you bring it into contact with the person and work of Christ? Christ does not cheapen Psalm 15. His ministry, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension to the right hand of the Father, none of that diminishes what David has to say here. If anything, it ratchets it up. But in in a magnificent way. So just, just walk through some of the items that we've, that we've already made here, and we're going to put some of these passages up on the screen. The, the passage starts off asking, who is going to come into your tent, the tabernacle, the tabernacle tent? Who can come into your presence? The question is, how will we approach God? Jesus turns that question on his head and says, well, no one will approach God, therefore, God will approach you. Isn't that exactly what John says in chapter 1? 
John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled is the literal word that John uses there. He tabernacled among us, and we saw His glory, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, we read Psalm 15, and we say, even on my best day, even if this really does express the desires of my heart, this is only a hope, only a desire, only an aspiration, I can never live up to this. No one can. You'd have to be God to meet these characteristics and these standards. Only God could approach God. And that's the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. God does approach God on our behalf in the person of Jesus Christ. So whereas David and all of the old covenant people are having to ask themselves, how do we get to God? How do we come in His presence? God says, there's no way that you can do that. You cannot stay and camp and rest and dwell with me. Therefore, I will make a way for me to dwell with you. And the holy, eternal, righteous Son takes on human flesh and He tabernacles among His people. Who is going to enter into the holy place to stand and to see the presence of God, to fellowship with Him. There's no way that I can do that. There's no way that you can do that on your best day. And yet, here's what we find in Hebrews chapter 16, verses ni- chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. This hope, talking about the promises that God has spoken through Christ. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. God says, there is no way that you can enter in into my presence. Therefore, I will have my son become human so that now, for the first time ever, a man may enter into the presence of God and not be expelled. And do you, do you notice, in, this verse, in these verses that we just read, do you notice what Jesus is called? This one who enters in behind the veil... He entered in as a forerunner for us. People, you can't be called a forerunner if you're not going to have people coming behind you tracing your footsteps. So Hebrews says, no, no one could ever enter into the presence of God, but Jesus does, and not just so that He can remain there, but He does so as a forerunner so that all those who's had to stand on the outside on the perimeter, looking in, longing, wondering, wishing that they could be there, could follow His lead in His footsteps and one day be in the very presence of God. Hebrews 7.25, therefore, 
He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. See, it's not simply that Psalm 15 says, well, you can't come into God's presence because you're not this kind of person. And then Jesus comes along and says, well, I'm going in as a forerunner, so at some point in time in the future, you can have fellowship with God, you can come into His presence. Hebrews says, no, that access and that fellowship with the Father, with the holy and righteous God, is yours for the taking right now. Not because you bought it, not because you earned it, not because you secured it, but because when you come, if you come through the work that Jesus does in your place, on your behalf, God counts the perfection of Jesus as your perfection and says, Welcome, son. Welcome, daughter. And then Hebrews takes it a step further in chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Scripture goes so far as to say that not only can you and I do what David could never do, we do what David could never do, and we do it with full confidence. We need not shy away. We need not wonder if I'm fit to enter into the presence of God. The truth is, you're not. And I'm not. But the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that's offered is, is that even though you are not fit, even though you are not qualified, you are a stranger and an exile, because God did God's work on your behalf, you are no longer considered a stranger. You're no longer considered an exile. You're now reconciled to the Father. And at any moment in time, you're able to come into the presence of God and offer up your thoughts, your prayers, your desires, your requests, and to do it with the full assurance that the only way that God would ever cast you out is if He cast His Son out first. I don't know how you get more certain. And if we had time, we could go on and on and on and show how Psalm 15 is all over the place in the New Testament, right? They want to know how you come into the tabernacle presence. Jesus' tabernacle is with us, but then Paul is going to say things in Ephesians and Corinthians. He's going to say, you know what? The temple of God is already here. You're it. You want the presence of God? The presence of God is already placed with inside you in the person of the Holy Spirit. You want to approach the presence of God? Paul says, 
You gather together as a corporate body. You gather together as a local church. That is the temple. That is what David wanted, at least in some measure. And you even cast your gaze further, and you look at what's said in Revelation 20 and 21, that there's coming a point in time when all of heaven and earth will be the most holy place of God's tabernacle. There will not be a single square inch of the universe where God's presence cannot be found. And that is what we stand to gain in the future. And you come back to Psalm 15 and you say, well, if all of that is mine and if all of that is what I stand to gain, God, make me look more like this. See, a bride on her wedding day does not get dressed up in order to win the love of her husband. She already has it. A bride gets dressed up, cleans herself up, beautifies herself, not to win her husband's love, but to celebrate the love and to anticipate greater expressions of that love to come in the future, which is all that Psalm 15 is for us now. It's not legalism. It's not holier than thou. It's not a list that we post on the door to keep certain people out while only the approved get in. It's a way for God's people to be able to express a heart of worship that says... Because of the greatness of the grace and mercy and love of God, I want to dress up. I want to be beautiful. I want to be holy and righteous, just as the one who called me is holy and righteous. Let's pray. Father, if only the desire of our hearts uh, could come more and more into conformity with the expression of this passage, we would know for certain that we were being made more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And yet, Father, in spite of the fact that our desires are too weak, that we're far too easily satisfied with lesser things, we still come back and we marvel at the grace of God which says that the one who began a good work in us will perfect it even until the very last day. And in spite of our failures and our fits and starts, in spite of our disobedience and rebellion, that you have promised to change each and every one of us into the likeness of your Son, to make us holy and righteous. So we ask, Lord, that as we go from here, that you would continue to impress upon us the weight of your holiness and your glory, but do so, Father, in a way that causes us to turn in joy to gaze at what it is that Christ has done on our behalf through his suffering death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, being raised to new life, and being welcomed back to your side in heaven. We look forward to that day. Give us eager hearts and give us a desire for purity and holiness. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask it. Amen.